Moms Unscripted is a production of Mops International. If you'd like to find a group near you, go to mops.org forward slash group search. If you'd like to start a group, go to mops.org forward slash start a group. Nona Jones is a rare combination of preacher, business executive, author, and entrepreneur. Her corporate leadership includes serving as the head of Global Faith Partnership at Meta, the company formerly known as Facebook, chief external officer for a multi-state school for an at-risk girls and public policy director for a multi-service utility company. She has simultaneously served in ministry preaching around the world while serving alongside her husband in leading the Open Door Church community in Gainesville, Florida. I'm exhausted just thinking about all of this. She has authored three books, including Killing Comparison, Success from the Inside Out from Social Media to Social Ministry, The Global acclaimed guide to digital discipleship for churches. Nona is wife to Pastor Timothy L. Jones, senior. He uh, hopefully has done something amazing with his life because that is a strong name. I feel like there's a lot of expectation with that name. She is also the proud mother to Timothy Jr., Isaac, and Golden Doodle Shiloh. Ah, oh, Shiloh. I mean, adorable. you have not, you've left all of your gifts on the table. Do you also play u- the ukulele? <laughs> I don't play the ukulele. But you I do paused play. as if the you piano. Pa- See, <laughs> she's like, "Well, I, that's not one of my twenty instruments." But <laughs> <laughs> put that in there. I play the harp and I play the lyre. I'm just kidding. I don't. <laughs> oh my god! I love everything that you have done that you've accomplished. I'm sure you have, because you sound like a go getter. There's twenty more things that you want to accomplish. I'm sure, but Nona, I mean. Also, how do you do you take vacations? Um, I'm a weird person where like I actually get refreshed and rejuvenated by getting things done. Mm-hmm. I I do take vacations like I step away. I like I love reading. So I'll yeah. step away and I'll go to the beach. And I'll just like read and relax and eat good food. Um, but, you know, I'm always excited to get back to whatever it is I'm doing. Yeah. I love, I love what I get to do. So you, you knew know. she was going to give a different answer whenever you asked that. She was I like, know. Well, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously, uh, this is amazing. So, okay. You said something very intriguing on Instagram recently. You said there is a very thin line that separates mediocrity from greatness. And that line is how we respond to rejection. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I feel like you're yeah. talking directly to me. So good. So yeah. go ahead. Oh, listen, I'm talking to me um, <laughs> because, you know, rejection is, it's just part of the human experience. Um, we experience rejection on a daily basis. And rejection is usually the result of, um, you know, expecting acceptance, right? Like mm-hmm. we do something because we expect that someone will accept us in some way. Maybe we ask uh, someone out because we expect that they're going to say yes. Mm-hmm. We apply for a job because we expect to get the promotion. Um, and then when we don't get it, you know, the way that we respond to it can either make us better or it can make us bitter. Um, mm. It can make us better if we look at it like, you know, this person didn't accept my offer to go out. That doesn't mean that something's wrong with me. It just means that we weren't compatible. Mm-hmm. Um, if the promotion didn't happen, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not you know, qualified for the job. Maybe there's just some other things that I can learn. So I need to grow. It can also make you bitter. It can make yeah. you say, you know what? 
this person didn't um, didn't accept my invitation because I suck mm-hmm. and I'm silly and I'm stupid and I'm ugly and I'm, you can just internalize it. But I think um, successful people have learned how to harness rejection as fuel for making them better. Um, mm-hmm. When we allow it to make us bitter, I think that's where mediocrity comes from. That's Agreed. so powerful. Mm-hmm. So you talk about not having our expectations met, right? We go in with some expectations and it doesn't happen the way we want. And so that can either, like you said, make us better or bitter. I've also found, and I'm wondering if you've experienced this in your life, that sometimes it's not that expectations haven't been met. It's that I bombed. Like I, I messed up. I did something wrong. I handled a situation poorly. Um, something happened that I feel a lot of shame about and that's, there's potential there for us mm-hmm. to get better or bitter as mm-hmm. well. How, do you, have you ever had like a bomb moment? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Listen, that's not even like a moment. That's like my <laughs> life. Like, I mean, the thing. You, if you never experience failure, what that means is you're probably not taking any risks. Mm-hmm. If you never experience failure. That means that you're probably playing it super safe sure. because failure will inevitably happen when we exist outside of our comfort zone, when we exist outside of what we're, f- we're familiar with. And so, yeah, I think I've had to navigate that many times, which, you know, as an example, you know, I've been very blessed in my career and there's been many times where I've had to make a presentation to like a senior executive or really high level, powerful leader. And, you know, maybe I got a number wrong in my presentation. Maybe I spelled a word wrong. Maybe I even used a word in the wrong context. And so Mm -hmm. afterwards, you know, you get the feedback that, oh, that was actually wrong or Mm -hmm. that was inaccurate. And I, you know, early on, that would destroy me because, you know, I would work so hard to try to be perfect. And the truth though is perfection isn't real. One of the keys that I've learned to use in order to not allow, I say, don't, don't allow praise to go to your head. Don't allow criticism to go to your heart. Mm. The way that I've learned to do that is just to own my flaws. Yeah. It's like, Hey, if the number was wrong, the number was wrong. Mm-hmm. The word was misspelled. Ugh, the word was misspelled. I looked over it a bunch of times. I missed it. If I use the word in the wrong context, that doesn't mean I'm an idiot. It just means, you know what? There's an opportunity to use it in a better context next time. So, mm-hmm. uh, you just own it and stop mm-hmm. trying to deflect and blame and explain away. It's like, yep, that that wasn't the best. <laughs> and in the end, that's emotionally better. Like that's right. that's honestly less time with your therapist, right? Of just like feeling like now you're some sort of failure going yes. in expecting, you know, something maybe to, to not go yep. the way you wanted it to go. Yep. Yep. You, you also said, um, I think that's hard though in this, I guess, where we are in the world where people are looking for everyone to be a 10 at everything they do. Right. And then, mm-hmm. so if you're at a, you know, an eight or whatever, some people are still thinking that you can be better. Um, are you fine? Are you seeing that a lot of just in your, when you look at like your success, I mean, I'm looking at at all. Am I looking at it? Like, you know, do better with your life <laughs> because <laughs> it's amazing with everything you've done. Where, where are you finding that you can use some of those keys in your own life? Well, I, so I try to be very self-aware. I haven't mm-hmm. always been that way. As a matter of fact, I think early on in my leadership journey and mm-hmm. to give you some context, I've been in an executive role um, since I was like 23. Mm-hmm. That was way too young, like fortune 100 company, you know, regional leadership team wow. sitting at the 
people making decisions about all types of strategy. I had no idea what we were doing, Mm -hmm. but because I was so young sitting at those tables, I definitely got the sense that I didn't belong because there was a lot that I didn't know. Mm. Um, There were questions I couldn't answer. And so I would look around the table and I would see other people and I'd be like, man, if only I could be like them. Mm. Well, the problem is they've been at it for 20 years. Like they've been to business school. They've been in multiple different leadership roles. And so I'm essentially trying to peg uh, my worth to them when they're in a whole different category of leader because they just had more experience. And I think we do that um, to, to yeah. use your, um, your analogy of kind of what we see and assuming we have to be a 10 because of what we see. Mm-hmm. Um, social media is definitely a big part of that, right? Because we, we post the highlight reel. Of course. We post the day that we got the new car. We don't post the day it was repossessed. Right. We post the day uh, when we got uh, engaged. We don't post the day we got divorced. Yeah. And so everybody sees that, oh my gosh, life is a 10 for you, but my reality is like a three or a four. And so now I start to feel like, oh man, I don't measure up. But the truth is you're comparing your reality to somebody else's fiction. Like that's not even, it's not even real. Um, and I've had to learn in my own life that in order for me to have peace in all circumstances, I have to be grateful for my reality and not feel like somehow I'm lacking or I'm less than because somebody else's life appears appears better. Yeah. Well, and I, I want to just, I don't know, this might be a, a brief departure, but you did talk about just your time at Facebook. In, in the bio, it said head of global faith partnerships at Meta. I honestly, whenever I think of Facebook, now Meta, like I don't think of a faith department or what that looks like. Can you explain a little, like what did that look like? What was that experience like? And how old were you? Yeah, (laughs) so I uh, joined joined Facebook. Let's see, this was 2017. So I would have been, I think, 34, Okay, this wasn't when you were 20. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. (laughs) No, 34, 35. And um, I was asked to join the company because this was around the time when Mark changed the mission of the company to focus on community building. And uh, like of all the different types of communities that exist in the world, the research showed that the largest community that was the most meaningful to people was the faith community. And um, that was something that the company had never focused on before. They really didn't have any sense of how we're going to serve this community. And so I was asked to join the company um, to build the strategy, to build the team. And so we would work with houses of worship. We would work with public figures, music artists across faiths. So it was Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, Jewish, Christian, et cetera. Um, and just a wonderful opportunity. You know, my, my husband and I, we, we pastor a church in Gainesville, Florida. Um, so we are Christian. And it was also really interesting to learn how other people approach mm-hmm. um faith and like what their frame of reference is and how their culture uh, influences the way that they see the world. And so, yeah, that's, that's what we did. And, and we tried to build tools and products to serve people of faith um, on the platform. That's awesome. So I want to talk a little bit about a coaching program that you have called success school. But before we do that, I'm wondering, has there been a moment where you're like sitting in a room and looking around and you're just like, I can't believe I'm here. It's like that that moment where you kind of like celebrate a little bit what you've accomplished. Have you like tell us a little bit about maybe one of those moments you've had? Yeah. So I have those moments all the time. And the reason is it's funny. My husband and I, we were just talking about this uh, this morning. So the way that I live my life. So myself, just as a, a person of, of faith, I live my life with the reality that 
but for the grace of God, there go I. And the reason why I have that um, thinking specifically is I had a very traumatic childhood. Um, there's an assessment called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Assessment, and uh, it's on a scale of like, I think like one to 10. And it essentially tells you the probability that a child will grow into an adult that has, you know, drug addiction, mm-hmm. uh, maybe there's incarceration, premature death, all these adverse experiences. And so, um, again, scale of one to 10, if you score a three, you're considered high risk for adverse outcomes in life. I scored an eight. Mm. So I absolutely should not be sitting here talking to you. I should be either in jail, on drugs, or dead. Like I should be statistically. And yet here I am. And so when I when I find myself in those rooms, for me, it isn't as much about celebrating like my achievement as it is the humility of knowing hmm. that had it not been you know, for the the grace of God, how it had it not been for people who saw something in me when I didn't see anything in myself, had it not been for that, I wouldn't be there. And so I, I just have deep, deep gratitude, deep gratitude. Like I know there are people who are much smarter than me, who have many more gifts than I do, who are in jail, who are drug addicted, who died early. So I'm very aware of that. Mm -hmm. And that just keeps me in a state of humility, like at all times. Mm -hmm. So yeah, <laughs> it happens all the time where I'm just like, wow, I, I'm here. You know, that's, it's just so amazing to me. I love it. Mm-hmm. Will you talk a little more about humility? I, I've been reading a lot about humility. So that's a word that I'm, I've been thinking a lot about and um, thinking a lot about how humility uh, is almost that antithesis of anxiety because mm-hmm. Um, anxiety is caused by our need to be in control, um, a desire to want to, um, manipulate every situation that's happening Mm -hmm. in our lives. Mm -hmm. And humility is actually the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. It's recognizing that, um, we are not in control, that God Mm -hmm. is in control. And when we embrace humility and it's not just like, thinking of yourself less, I don't think. I think it's just a different posture. Um, But talk to us a little bit more about humility because it's such a powerful concept that is not, we don't talk about Mm -mm. that a lot. You, so you hit the nail on the head. Um, So in my my latest book um, called Killing Comparison, one of the chapters I talk about the latent power of humility. Mm. And I call it a latent power because many people don't think of humility as a gift or as, you know, a power. And yet I believe that humility is the most powerful character quality we can have because Mm. to your point, it's not about thinking lowly of yourself. Mm -hmm. Like that's not humility. Um, Humility is simply fully occupying whatever lane God has placed you in, like whatever gifts you have, uh, whatever, you know, job that you're in, whatever, um, uh, family situation that you're in, it's bringing your absolute best to that without looking over the fence at somebody else's mm-hmm. job, somebody else's gifts, mm-hmm. somebody else's family and being like, if only I had that, then I would be okay. Mm-hmm. Humility is I'm okay as I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's so different. Many people think that that would be arrogance, but actually what, what differentiates humility from arrogance is that arrogance is 
kind of to your point, it's, it's really self-reliance and self-importance. Um, arrogance is also actually, um, it, it's insecurity and in, in manifested. That's what arrogance is. Like people who are yes. arrogant yes. are not confident at all. They're yeah. actually quite arrogant. Uh, but humility, again, it just allows you to rest in who you are and be the absolute best that you can be at any given moment. That, that is what humility is. And that's why it's a power. And when you get to that place, you're not comparing. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. You can yep. appreciate mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good, Jay. I agree. Okay, mm-hmm. let's talk about success school. I'm curious, what are a few key things that are like definitive of what success school stands for? Sure. Well, so first of all, I, I started success school because I get contacted all the time by people who are like, can you mentor me? Can you mentor me? And like, I have such a heart to help people discover their potential, activate their potential, but I don't have the time (laughs) uh, to help everybody. And so uh, when I was building out the curriculum for success school, I wanted to do a few things. One, I wanted to definitely help people, you know, achieve their their goals and their dreams and give them the practical uh, tips and strategies that they needed to do that. And I wanted to layer on top of that, healing from trauma because what i have found and this is this is something that many people sometimes don't realize is that you know success is defined as achieving the aim that you set out to achieve that's what success is defined as but the problem is what if you achieve success at the wrong aim right like what if you achieve the aim And you get on the other side of it and you still feel unfulfilled. Mm -hmm. You still feel worthless. Like you still feel like, you know, you you haven't accomplished much. What that means is the thing that you thought was your aim actually isn't. And trauma will cause you to create uh, a goal that actually is a proxy for worth. So it's like, okay, if I get the promotion, then I'll finally matter. If I launch the business, then I'll matter. Mm-hmm. If I get married, I'll finally matter. Lose the weight, I'll finally matter. And so what Success School starts with is let's deal with the, the trauma that first is shaping the way that you think about yourself, the way that you think about your life. Because once we deal with that, then we will be clear enough to set the right aim. And mm-hmm. it has happened over and over again, where once we deal with the, the trauma that people have experienced, that many times their goals end up changing. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, oh, you know what? The reason why I wanted to do that is because actually, you know, my father always made me feel like I was never good enough. And so I actually don't want to do this thing. I was only doing this to impress him. Mm-hmm. I actually want to do this other thing. <laughs> so it's been it's been so fun. Um, and we've had several thousand people go through it so far. And they've all said that it's been life life changing. So it's Amazing. such a blessing. Where can people get more info on Success School? Yeah. Um, nonajones.com backslash school. Just go to my website, click on school and it's right there. It's fully online, self-paced. So, um, yeah, people can take it at their own pace. In the end, this is just a bunch of internal work. I'm listening to you. Um, this is, if you wanted to charge for it, I mean, even more than the book, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of hard heart work. That's, that's what the first, that's what the first section is called. It's called heart work. Man. Um, what inspired you to write Killing Comparisons? Oh gosh. So if you would have said to me like three years ago, Nona, I think you're insecure. I would have said, absolutely not. Look at all I've done. Look at all I have. Like there's no way I'm insecure. But what happened was um, at the start of the pandemic, 
you know, I, I'm a speaker. So I had like this full calendar of speaking engagements for 2020. And then at the start of the pandemic, all these events got canceled or postponed and rescheduled. So my calendar got clear and I was on Instagram one morning. I was just going on there to respond to comments. And I happened to catch a glimpse of my news feed. And I saw a post from a friend of mine who was sharing the news that she was so excited because she was going to be speaking at this huge virtual women's conference. And she was encouraging people to register. Well, I scrolled down a little bit more and another friend of mine was sharing the same news. And uh, I scrolled down a little bit more. Another friend of mine shared the same news and another friend and another friend. And so it got to the point that I knew all the speakers in this conference. I knew the host and a question began to percolate in my heart, which was, why wasn't I invited to speak? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I, I... I clicked on everybody's profiles. I was like, well, how many followers do they have in comparison to me? I clicked on their websites. I was like, well, what else are they doing in comparison to me? Like I started to do all this comparison calculus. That's what I call it. um, To try to figure out, you know, why her, not me? Why was I overlooked? Why wasn't I invited? And in the midst of that, being a person of faith, like I, I felt like I heard God say, you know, why does it matter? Why does it matter that you weren't invited? Why does it matter uh, that they're speaking and you're not? And it was a question I had never, ever mm. considered. Like mm. when I was kind of descending into the the abyss sure. of insecurity, sure. he never was like, why does this matter? And so that question, it kind of created this like catalytic moment where I confronted myself and I had to pause and be like, yeah, why does this matter? Like, what is it that I believe about myself that makes somebody else's success feel like my failure? Yeah. So that's what started the journey. And it was about a, I would say about a year of just self-work. And what happened was uh, a church in South Carolina invited me to speak at their women's conference. And I just, I wanted to share what I had been, you know, learning and practicing. And so I did, and I called the message killing comparison and the way that the women responded was just so overwhelming that I was like, okay, I think yeah, this is you're bigger. onto something. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote the book. <laughs> And I think you um, outwardly um, admitted to what most people do on social media. Mm -hmm. Totally. Looking at numbers and comparing. And my daughter used to giggle at me. I'm not, the the only reason I'm on Instagram is for my business. She said, mom, I would be so nervous about you having a Facebook page because I would be the one to post, you know, me just rolling out of bed, not me. made. (laughs) I'll be like, this is reality. But when you said posting, you know, the Christmas photo or the perfect marriage and wedding, knowing behind closed doors, I, I mean, I know a couple couples now going through H-E double hockey sticks, but their feed doesn't show that at all. And and on top of it, not even asking for help or support or, and I think to me, that's a, that's a cancer in itself. Like this, this um, eating that you have to stay at that. You have to stay at that appearance that things are okay. So I bet that opened up a lot of like, let me stop comparing myself to these women too. And then I like how you uh, posed it, looking over in someone else's backyard of their career, their car, keeping up with the Joneses is still Mm -hmm. a thing. And now it's just all over social media. Yeah, it is. And, And that's why. So on the one hand, Yes, social media absolutely exposes our insecurity, like it does, because we now have visibility into things that we wouldn't normally have visibility into, right? Like I remember, and I talk about it in the book, I remember, man, early in my career, I didn't know what other people were doing unless I was like sitting across the table from them. Yeah, you didn't see it, yeah. 
Yeah. I didn't know. And so um, now you do have the front row seat, not just to their vacation, but to like mm-hmm. the perfect pictures mm-hmm. from their vacation. So it's just like, wow, even wow. when I went there, my vacation wasn't like that. Right. right. <laughs> and so you end up in this sense that like nothing's ever good enough. Mm-hmm. But while social media does expose our insecurity, I also believe it's not the source of our insecurity. Yeah. And I'll tell you yeah. why. Yeah, Two people can see the exact same post. One person can walk away from it inspired and happy and another person can walk away from it expired and sad. Mm. And so the question becomes, what is it in our heart? What do we believe about ourselves that makes us view that as an indictment on our worth? And mm-hmm. that, honestly, mm-hmm. that's why I wrote the book because I was like, this is so much deeper than just what we see on social media. Because look, even before social media, we were comparing ourselves to people. Like we would compare ourselves to a classmate, we would compare ourselves to a colleague, we would compare ourselves, you know? So it's like, all right, how do we deal with this root issue so that no matter what we see, we are not feeling like, oh my gosh, you know, I don't measure up. Yeah, I know even like family trips get a little bit more expensive. We had a family reunion about a year ago and it was like, oh, well, we need to hire a photographer. We need <laughs> oh, to right. like yeah. all the, and, and, I, and I've seen a few friends do it. They go and have vacations and they hire a photographer Stop on site that. to take what? photos what like of their vacation oh my goodness like hey spend a few hours with us no you're so going that we like right but i'm just i mean social media it, the comparison it's expensive from uh oh you have that car i want that car but from a right, social right. media perspective of like the the expectation i think for people is so much higher and it's only getting higher and i think that's also a part of the problem is that it's expected mm-hmm. like you are expected to maintain this level of what you see and so i don't know exactly really how you fight that without mm-hmm. talking about pouring into their self-worth and sure, that, that needs sure. to be something else but i don't i don't mm-hmm. know if you have um students that are, are actively going through that and you're like hey Look, this is success school. I don't know if you're going to, like you have to, like you said, heart first before you can even get there Mm. and and start going on that. Well, I think you have to first um, acknowledge what's happening inside of you. I think we spend more time denying insecurity than defeating insecurity. So if you were to ask someone, you know, hey, why are you hiring a photographer on your vacation? They would be like, oh, we just want to capture the moment. Have you always done that? well, not really, but you know, now with social media. And so it's like, oh, okay. So this isn't actually about your family. It's mm. about the people watching your account. Right. And so you have to first acknowledge, um, that there is, there's something in you that make, that compels you to mm. feel like I have to do this in order to have this opinion in people's minds. Um, but I think from acknowledgement, uh, then we do have to do the the work. We have to do the yeah. work. Um, in the book, I talk about um, insecure foundations because fundamentally insecurity is really, many people think it's about low self-esteem. No, insecurity is not about low self-esteem. Insecurity is about what your identity is secured to. And if it's secured to an insecure foundation, which is anything that is subject to people's approval, opinion, assessment, or evaluation, um, you're going to be insecure because people's opinions change their sense of worth changes. And so over time, you're going to feel insecure. So things like marital status, you know, there are some people who like, they literally feel like I, I will not have worth until I'm married. Yeah. Um, you know, financial status. Some people feel like until my bank account has this many zeros, you know, I will not have, have value. 
Some people it's academic credentials. They're like going after degree after degree after degree because they're just like, once I get these letters behind my name, then I'll matter. Um, but the problem is, you know, even after you get that stuff, it's not all created equal. Like a degree from, I don't know, I'm just making this up, like university on the side of the road doesn't carry as much weight as a degree from like Princeton. So yeah, you got a doctorate right. from university on the side of the road, but that doesn't carry as much weight as Princeton. So you're on this constant shifting sand of value, um, which is why you have to at some point just be like, you know what? I'm going to focus on who I am mm-hmm. <laughs> and the that I have. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's heavy. Whenever you were talking about um, goals and not achieving them and all of that, a big kind of change for me that happened is when success was not goals, success was a vision. And so am I achieve, am I successful because I achieve a, my vision statement towards it? I'm not successful because I achieved goals. Now goals need to be in line with my vision statement, but that is not how I do success. Mm-hmm. And that switch in my head helped me I guess not have that comparison of where am I at, or maybe I hit the goals you talked about kind of maybe you hit a different goal than what you were aiming for in that way and and kind of changing the the way you think about it. So I was curious, you know, obviously we're in 2023 now, what would that, what would that success, what does that look like for you um, heading into this new year? So here's something interesting about me. Um, I, I don't actually have like year, five year, 10 year plans. Um, I, for the most part, I really try to focus on, okay, what does my family need? Um, how can my gifts and abilities and skills serve a mission of whether it's my company or whether it's the company that I'm working for? Um, I mean, my, I think my number one goal at all times is just to be physically healthy to the best of my ability, because I do know that at the end of the day, if my health goes, nothing else really matters. And so like, there isn't something on the inside of me that's like striving for any particular thing. I just want to serve everything that I'm doing well. And uh, I don't have any qualms with someone who has like, this is my strategy for the year. I just don't, I used to be that way. I used to be the one who was like, here's my checklist for the year. Here are the things I want to get done. And I would do it. I would do it year in and year out. But I discovered that on the other side of accomplishing those things, um, the real thing that I wanted to accomplish wasn't accomplished. And that was a sense of worth. Mm-hmm. And so now that I actually have like a rooted identity where I know who I am, um, I'm no longer defined by achievement lists or checklists. Um, so I just kind of am able to do what, what energizes me in the moment. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really fun. Cause I don't, I don't enter the year with like a list. Like these are my resolutions for the year mm-hmm. into the year. Like, all right, let's see what the year offers and, and how I can best serve uh, the opportunities that come my way. I think that r- removes some pressure too. I'm not a, a new year's resolution person either. For me, it's a smaller goal, like trying to read 10 pages a night of a book or yeah, yeah. going through my winter clothes. And then now it's springtime. like that's always hard so let's talk about management and productivity for you Nona how do you order your day what does that look like so um I have my and this is part of what I talk about a success goal um I actually have my calendar 
like labeled from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep. Um, one of the things that I talk about in Success School is the need for every minute of your day to have a name. And so I wake up anywhere between six and seven. It depends on uh, what's going on in my day. But uh, typically the first hour of my day is dedicated to working out. So I'll either go for a run uh, outside or I uh, have a gym at my house. So I'll ride my Peloton bike. Um, from there, I usually spend, well, I'll take a shower and get cleaned up. But after that, I usually spend about an hour in prayer, uh, Bible study, devotional time, just trying to, you know, allow the spirit to be open to what God wants to, to download to me. And then from there, um, I'll typically start my work day. I try to keep like the first block of my day for actual focus work. So let's say I start around, I don't know, nine or nine 30, typically between like that time and maybe 11, 11 30 or noon, that's going to be time for work. So what I'll do is I'll block off like however much time is needed. Maybe it's an hour to write a speech. Maybe it's a, an hour to work on a deck. Maybe it's an hour to just read reports, whatever it is, but I'll put it on my calendar. So I know at this time I'm doing this thing. Um, and then my afternoons, I usually keep that open for meetings. And so the way that I do my meetings, though, is like I don't do hour long meetings. I typically just do like 30 minute meetings. Um, I'll only do an hour long meeting if it's something that's like really requires an hour. Um, but the way that I optimize my time is before a meeting, I always like to have a pre-read. So I tell the person, hey, if there's any information um, that you want me to read going into the meeting so we can use this time for decision making and alignment, Let's do that because live time should not be used for reading documents. Mm -hmm. It's like, let's use that time for conversation. Mm -hmm. So usually my uh, afternoon is just like meetings. I'll usually end my day around 4.30 or 5. Uh, I do a second workout. Um, and that's usually when I do my muscle training workout. Uh, at the end of the day, I don't drink coffee. So this is why I work out first thing in the morning because that actually energizes me. Uh, and then at the end of the day, I do my workout to kind of get me pepped back up. I'll go pick up my uh, children from school and uh, then we have dinner. And uh, usually at the end of the night, I'll try to read a chapter or two of whatever book I'm reading that week. And um, that's how I organize my day. That's good. Mm -hmm. That's I have, a full day. And well, and it's interesting. I've, cause I've read a little bit about what certain like executives and C-suite people are doing. And I've, I've heard a lot of them. They don't allow meetings to be scheduled until one o'clock in their day. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the morning is meant for work and like, that's what a lot of them are starting to do. So they'll start work at seven or eight or whenever they do, and they don't do any meetings until one. Mm -hmm. And so I was curious, like, is that pretty, is that, is that intentional? Like what you're yeah. Doing? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I find that the first, you know, half of my day is when I am most intellectually sharp. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's the time of the day when. Um, I can usually do the most complex work. And so the after, by the afternoon, I'm usually drained. I try not to have uh, meetings unless I just have to, because then you're having conversations and it's like questions. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's seems to be a pattern among, um, leaders. Mm -hmm. And so what would you say to the person that only has one hour meetings? How do you get them down to 30? You know, listen. I'm not speaking for anyone. Are you anyone talking in this room? about someone in no, the room? No, I am not. I already know no one sitting in these chairs likes meetings. You would be so. surprised. I actually have had like five minute meetings. I've had fifteen minute meetings. Like it's it, a lot of times meetings are. Here's the thing: a meeting will fill the time given to it. Yep. <laughs> and so once you say this is how much time we have, um, usually if you have your pre reads. 
you get all the information, you get all the context beforehand. You usually don't need a lot of time um, to meet. It's more so just making sure I understand the decision that needs to be made. Here's the information I understand. Here's the decision I'm making. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. One of our favorite questions to wrap up with is what is motherhood teaching you in this season? Oh, I love this question. Um, so because I have had, I've had a really, I've had an interesting um, career journey uh, where like, at, like I said, at 23, I was already an executive. So by the time I had my children, I had my first at 27, I had my second one at 30. Um, I was already in roles where I was like, traveling all over the place, you know, leading teams, all of this. And so the early years of their life, um, a lot of times I would be traveling and, you know, now that they're, they're like 10 and 12, I've gotten to a place where I'm being really, really intentional about being here and making sure that, you know, my relationship with them is really strong because, um, Every time I'm with my children, I definitely learn something more about myself. I learn how to be patient. Um, even though I love people and I lead people, I can be impatient because, some, you know, I see the end already. Like we're having the conversation now, but I already see where we need to go. And so it's like, let's just go. With my children, it's like, yeah, you see the end, but they have no way of conceptualizing it at all. And so as far as they're concerned, today is the end. Like they, there is no next year, five years from now, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm learning patience. Like I'm really learning patience and I'm learning the value of time. Um, they're just growing so quickly. And the amount of time that I have left with them is shorter than the amount of time that I had with them prior. So I'm learning the value of time and how to prioritize. Hey friends, thank you for joining us for Moms Unscripted, a production of Mops International. A quick reminder that opinions discussed are solely the opinions of the individuals and do not necessarily represent the organization. For more information on today's episode, please visit mops.org backslash Moms Unscripted podcast for show notes. And join us again next week for another unscripted conversation around the Mops table.